Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Hey, it was a classic Tuesday night conversation. Um, in my gospel community. It didn't happen this past Tuesday, but it could have happened any Tuesday. As we're all sort of sitting around, um, this particular one was with the guys, and uh, the guys are talking about life, um, sharing a little bit of what's going on in their world, and we're talking about Jesus, and how does the gospel sort of interact with and change the stuff of our lives, the real stuff. And uh, sooner or later we're talking, and then all of a sudden somebody's like, yeah, you know what, I just, I really, I really should just read the Bible more often. And maybe that's happened for you in a group. You're talking and then somebody's confession, honest moment is, I should read the Bible more. And to that I would say, well, absolutely, like the Bible's great. Um, but whenever I hear someone talk like that, especially about the Bible or sometimes about prayer, my mind usually wonders, is there actually something going on in there? Like, the way that it's articulated is, I wish I could read the Bible more. But in reality, we tend to do the things that we want to do. And so usually what the person means by that is, I wish I wanted to read the Bible more often. I wish I wanted to pray more often. Maybe that's something that you've sensed in your own heart or in your own mind. Whether it's, I wish I wanted to pray or it's, I, I, I wish I wanted to come to church more. I wish, because sometimes it's hard to come to church, let's be real. Um, I wish I wanted to share my faith more with others. I wish I wanted to serve our city more generously. This want to do the right thing, the should thing, is something that we all feel. And oftentimes it's in the light of Christian community that we start to get sort of aware of those shoulds. These are the things that I should do more often. Our study this week in the Gospel-Centered Life, um, which is the, the, the guide that we've been using for our groups, our gospel communities is what we call them, um, that meet weekly to encourage one another in the faith. We've been using this, and we're on week four, and week four um, is entitled Law and Gospel. Now, the law, of course, has lots of technical meaning to it in the scriptures, but most of us presently experience the law as the shoulds that run in our heads and our hearts, the things that we know that's the right thing to do, but I kind of feel like I'm not sure I want to do the should that I should do. I know it's right, but the desire to actually do it is sometimes lacking in my own life. And so the question that this article and the study that we'll talk about this week, and if you're not in one of those groups, you're welcome to come this week, they're open, is how do we become the kind of people who delight to obey God? How do we become the kind of people who want to rather than just feel like we should? I mean, if we're honest, like, obedience is that word that, like, if you're in the food realm, obedience has, like, a distaste for us, and, like, it feels like vegetables, right? That's what obedience is to us. It's the vegetables that, like, we know that this, the everyday salad eater is missing out because bacon is better, 
It's just bacon is better by definition. So, so like there's the shoulds, like the obedience is vegetables, right? But or if you're thinking it was like this is a business frame of mind, right? Obedience is like the compliance department, right? <laughs> That's what obedience is to us. And it feels like there's a particular kind of engineer that geeks out on compliance, but most everybody else, like compliance isn't their deal. Um, so obedience feels like, ah, but we can't strike it from the Bible. Like, in fact, ob- obedience is one of the key themes in the scriptures. But we have a problem with obedience. And that question of how do we become the kind of people who delight to obey God is perhaps one that we wrestle with. And that's the question that I want to try and tackle this morning. And I want to do it um, with a simple roadmap, all right? The problem with our obedience, the path toward true obedience, and then the power for joyful obedience, okay? The, power, the, the problem with our obedience, the path towards true obedience, and the power of joyful, for joyful obedience. And we're going to see that as we consider Galatians chapter 2. So jump back in with me. Um, if you've got a phone, um, go there, all right? If you've got a paper Bible, um, go there, all right? We'll hear you crinkling pages, Um, chapter two in Galatians, it's in the New Testament. It's this incredible letter written by the apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. And here we're going to see that the problem with our obedience is actually something that lies underneath our obedience. Watch this. Chapter 11. But when Cephas, Cephas is the other name for Peter. All right. Maybe you've heard Peter before. Peter is one of the original disciples of Jesus. But when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I, th- we're jumping right into it again. Last week, Paul was like, you foolish Galatians. This week, Peter and Paul are showing down. All right? You f- so I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Ugh. Um, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, but like public, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, hold on, we'll get there. Before, we got we to see some setup for the showdown, okay? Paul and Peter coming like this. What's Antioch? Antioch is the first century city. It's a port city that was the launch pad for a, literally a global church planting movement in the first century. It's an incredibly diverse city culturally, lots of different kinds of people. What we see is the first and really consistent expression of the church as a multi-ethnic community was present in Antioch, in their leadership and in their church. Now that's very different from, from James. All right, what's James? Where's James? Peter, Cephas, comes, well, one, he came from James, and then some men came from James to Antioch. What does that mean? James is the leader of the first century church in Jerusalem, a culturally Jewish city, not as diverse nearly as Antioch. So the Jews came to Antioch to the church there. And what did they see? 
Well, I'm telling you what they didn't see. They didn't see Peter eating with the Gentiles, but Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. So Peter, Cephas, had this incredible revelation where Jesus showed up to him in a dream and said, hey, Peter, I know all of the ways in which the Jewish customs and laws have created a cleanliness for you as a people and as a nation. And those were important for a season, but now they're important no longer because you are not clean because of what you eat. You are clean because Christ has died and he has raised and the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from sin. So Jesus shows up to Peter in a dream. Peter goes, starts eating bacon, probably some spaghetti and meatballs too. I don't know. Um, but, but Peter goes then traveling around the area, preaching the gospel to people who are not Jews. So he then has this incredible experience with the Lord and then expands the territory of his ministry to start preaching the gospel that it is no longer the law of the Jews that keeps one clean or right with God, but it is the cleansing work of Christ that makes anyone clean, okay? Meals carried a particular meaning here in the first century and a different one from, from the way that we think of food today, all right? So for us, food today is like, food is fuel, right? And maybe your approach is this, like food is what I need to optimize the human machine, so that I can function at the highest capacity and I'll take any kind of supplement or any kind of protein or balanced diet in order to optimize my body functioning in this world. So many people approach food that way. Food also for us can be fast, right? Because we are overworked and because we have so many activities in our lives, food has to be fast so that we can take it on the go from one thing to another because we don't have time to sit down with each other. Food is fast for us in our culture. Food is also fashion, right? I mean, restaurants are hip, right? Or, or should we say restaurants are drip? Is that the language right now? I don't know. But like restaurants, restaurants have a scene to them, right? And, and you know if you've been at that restaurant and you tell somebody if you've been to that restaurant or you talk about that experience, Food has a fashionable element to us, for us. But, but what's food in the first century? Food is fellowship in the first century. Food was acceptance of another person and welcome into your circle. And so what's happening here? Well, Cephas has welcomed these Gentiles into his life. He has fellowshiped with them. And then all of a sudden when his old friends from Jerusalem show up. What's he do? He, he distances himself as if saying, no, you're no longer acceptable to me. I'm rejecting you just because of your culture. This is a threat to the gospel in the apostle Paul's mind. Peter separates himself in fear, in self-interest, and he lands himself in public hypocrisy. He rejects his new friends in front of his old friends, and in the process doesn't stumble into something, but he puts the whole integrity of the good news at risk. And underneath these Jewish customs, underneath his law-keeping and his law-breaking is what? Selfishness. It's all about him. 
How does Paul approach Peter, this pillar of faith? Does he blast him for the sin of racism, looking down upon someone of another culture, judging? Does he sort of charge him with the transgression of nationalism, thinking his own sort of cultural ascendancy and superiority is, 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 is leaving him above these other nations? No. What does he say? He says, not that you're out of step with the law. You are out of step with the good news. Think about that for a second. He's not saying to, to Cephas, hey, you're breaking the rules. He's saying, you are not straight walking. You are not in line with the good news that Jesus has lived and died and risen again. Peter, the problem here is not just that you're breaking the rules. The problem here is that you've forgotten redemption. You have forgotten, my brother, the good news of the Lord Jesus, who, by the way, is the righteous one. He's the only clean one. And when, when Jesus showed up to you, Peter, right, what did he do with you? Though you had nothing to stand on on your own, he sat down and had fellowship with you. Though from the first moment in the boat when you knew you were a sinner through and through, all the way to the triple denial when, I, when Jesus went to the cross, Peter has nothing to stand on. And Jesus says, Peter, I want to eat with you. That's good news. That's welcome that he doesn't deserve. That's fellowship that he hasn't earned. Paul is opposing Peter. Not because he's out of line with the law, because he's out of line with the love of God. Just like Peter, when you sort of go under the surface, our law keeping and our law breaking tends to always be about us. And our very approach to the law, our very approach to obedience tends to be focused on self in a way that only ends up in our unrighteousness or our self-righteousness. It does not produce the righteousness of God. We need a completely different path towards obedience, a different approach to the law of God, one that's driven and rooted in the love of God if we're ever going to be freed to obey God with joy rather than duty. Okay, so let's keep reading. We'll get there. What's the path towards true obedience? Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth. He's still talking to Cephas, I believe, here. So we, he's saying, we're still, we are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Meaning our cultural customs are in line with the law. But of course, the cultural customs and assumptions of the Gentiles were not. So, so we are Jews by nature law keepers. But we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. They're not counted righteous but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, so even from the rebuke that, Peter, that Paul gives to Peter, we know that the path towards true obedience doesn't run through the law. 
The path towards true obedience actually runs through the gospel. Somehow, Paul has learned how to rebuke someone with good news. I'm not, are you good at that? Like, I'm pretty good at rebuking people with bad news. Hey, you're, you're doing wrong there. Like, but how do you rebuke someone, challenge someone with good news? Hey, hey, you need to hope in Jesus here. Hey, you need to trust the Lord here. Hey, like, do you, have you forgotten the hope that you have in Christ? He rebukes with an encouraging tone of the good news rather than the, the, the deadening sense of the law. And, and so he shows us that actually the path towards true obedience runs through the gospel, not through the law. We have our own purposes for the law, sometimes a way of making ourselves feel better about ourselves or feel like we are measuring up, but God has a purpose for the law. And it's on display here. The law is purposed to drive us to the gospel. The function of the law is to lead us to the gospel. And here it is that they are Jews by birth, but, but they're somehow they're even in the right ethnicity, they're in the right setting. They can't be counted righteous by keeping these rules. Matter of fact, all of the dogged efforts that Paul and Peter had to keep the law only were done unlawfully in a way that convicted them in the end. Like, Paul was so zealous for the law that he started killing others. Peter was so dogged about the law in this situation that he starts excluding others. Peter is needing to be reminded that he has believed the good news, and therefore he has been made right with God based on what Jesus has done, not on what he has done. Because no one will be justified by works of the law. Okay, let's think this through. All right, in short, here's what this means. This means that our, our righteousness, no one is counted righteous by the law because most of our approach to the law is selfish and our selfishness doesn't necessarily produce righteousness. Our default approach is me-centered rather than God-centered. Right? Isn't that where we started? If we could have a God-centered approach to doing the right thing, that we actually do the right thing because we enjoy the right thing and we enjoy the one that it pleases, rather than doing the right thing because it makes us feel better or because it makes us look better. We do the right thing for me rather than delighting to do what's right because it pleases the Lord. And so here, the gospel-centered life is going to give us two categories this week in the article, and I want to preview them, okay? The self-centered ways of approaching the law are really twofold. It calls them legalism, and it calls them license. Now, these are things that might be familiar to you or might be completely brand new to you. Legalism, if we describe it, is that way of saying, hey, I'm a Christian, but I still function in many ways as if the shoulds the law hangs upon me and over me, that I am under it. And, and because of that, I keep the rules for my sake. Because when I keep the rules, the law weighs less on me and I stand up straighter. I keep the rules for my sake. I do what's right, but not from delight, from duty. I build an identity as a law keeper, as a good person, as a hard worker, as a moral person. But really, it's very different from delighting in God. 
Because the longer that I operate out of a legal mindset where the law hangs upon me, I begin to believe that there is no such thing in life besides duty. There is no getting beyond this dutiful way of doing what's right for others or right for God. And there's no such thing as delight, joy, freedom. So you might say, hey, I'm saved by good news, but, but the way that I grow is through my own work and my own effort. Yet what's going on here and what we see is, that, listen, you can work all you want, but if your work is not in line with the gospel, then it won't actually sanctify you. It won't actually grow you. It'll actually inflate your sense of self rather than humble your sense of self and inflate your idea of who God is and the grace of God at work in your life. Right? You will still remain self-centered rather than God-centered. And in the end, this legalism mindset only brings you a kind of truth without grace. License, on the other hand, has a way of dismissing the law I break the rules for my sake because I don't want to do them anyway. I don't delight in what is right. Why would I do what I don't delight in? I'm going to do what I want, what I desire, what I crave. And so I build this identity as a lawbreaker. The rules got no hold on me. And I am authentic. I am true to myself and I am free because I live from what's within me. There is no compass there, but only one that's driven by what I, de- what I desire and what drives me. License is in many ways grace without truth. It doesn't matter what I do. God loves me and he's going to accept me no matter how I live or what I do. And any kind of should upon me is restrictive and repressive. There's no freedom there. But what Paul is trying to get Peter to see and he's trying to get us to see is that there's another option. Besides legalism and besides license, there is the gospel of love. There is a way of experiencing the love of God so profoundly that you are freed to obey the law of God joyfully. There is a way of the love of God coming down upon your mind and your heart such that you function so naturally out of the love of God that it's easier to trust God even when it comes to the law of God. That you go, listen, I, I, I obey for goodness sakes because I, I, I obey for, for my Lord's sake. Like why would I, for the one who's loved me and gave himself for me, not follow his lead? He leads me in his ways, and I want to go his way because I've seen the, the goodness of his way, the love of his way, the rightness of his way, the beauty of his way. I want to follow him for goodness sake. It's very different. It's a God-centered approach rather than a me-centered approach to obedience. The law drives us to the gospel because it's only the gospel that frees us to obey the law. And think about this for a second. Let me just spin two examples very quickly because I think we should move on. But let's just go back to Bible reading. Like if you were, if you were thinking as in the, camp, in the camp of legalism about Bible reading, you would say good Christians read their Bible. If you want to be a good Christian, you better read your Bible. In fact, you probably won't know God at all if you don't read your Bible. Read it. And when you read it, you know what you will? You'll feel better about yourself. And when you don't read it, you want to know what you'll feel? You'll feel crappy and bad about yourself. 
And your sense of self will hang in the balance of how well and how much you read the Bible or how little you read the Bible. That's the legalist approach. What about the license approach? It doesn't matter. Who cares if you read the Bible? Plenty of people don't read the Bible. God is so great, he will meet you wherever you want. He will meet you in your morning drive. He will meet you on a lunch break. He will meet you in nature. He will meet you on Sunday. God is pursuing you. It doesn't matter. You approach all other areas of life with a kind of discipline and regimen and routine. But, but God's so gracious, he doesn't want any kind of discipline from you. He loves you. What about the, what about the love of the gospel? Listen, friends. God so loves you that he's chosen to communicate with you. Like God so loves you, he didn't want you wandering through nature, wondering about who made the trees and their leaves, but knowing that it was God and all of his wisdom and power and grace. And not only did he want you to see things, he wanted you to hear things. He wants to know you. He loves you. And so he's given a way to communicate with you, a way for you to communicate with him, to commune with him. The Bible is his gift to you for relationship with you. Now, for fun, we've got to go one more, okay? Because it's so blatant here in the passage. I mean, the ethnic tension here in Galatians 2 and in the rest of the New Testament is just all over the place, and it speaks to our moment in time. So if you have a legalistic approach to race, here's what you'll do. You will view your own culture, your own race, your own identity as the right way. The right customs, the right approach to life. And it'll be easy for you to critique other cultures or other peoples and say, if others just acted like us, that everything would get better. In fact, the world would get better if people adopted my way, my culture's way, of viewing the world and acting within it. Now, on the other hand, you would say, in the license Right? So here you have easy to look down on other cultures. In the camp of license, you would say, hey, listen, every culture around the globe is wonderful and good and should be accepted exactly as it is with no kind of critique whatsoever. Every approach to life is good and right and true and should be accepted. But the gospel, on the other hand, frees you because it brings truth about who we are as humans, that we are flawed. And that not only we individually are flawed, but there are actual flaws and imperfections in our own cultural expressions and experiments. Such that you, because of the grace of God towards you, will be able to, in humility, extend grace to others who are different than you. Often holding back your critique seeking to explore and understand, but at the same time being willing to say every culture, including my own, is deserving of critique because there are ways in which it reflects the character of God and the design he has for humanity, and there are ways that it doesn't reflect. It'll allow you both the ability to critique and the humility to be generous because what, the, what legalism will do is it will constantly put you in a place where it's easy for you to judge and hard for you to extend grace. Differences will be seen as worse, not necessarily neutral, as oftentimes they can be. 
Selfishness is at the root of both legalism and license because we approach God, we approach Bible reading, we even approach our own cultural expressions in a way that makes us feel better about ourselves and at times worse about others. But the gospel of love and of the sacrifice of Jesus changes all of that because he has loved me and given himself for me. Come on, let's get to this now. Let's get to the power for joyful obedience. Here it is, 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Okay, so is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Here's what he's saying. Well, what happens if we say we're going to believe in God and that'll count us righteous, but what if we stumble and we start sinning? Like, does that mean that the whole project is failing and flawed? Our trust in Christ? No, 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 no. It doesn't make Christ the servant of sin. It just proves that we could never even stand on our own in the first place. Even if we stand on grace but then fall into sin, it proves that we needed grace. Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law. I would never be acceptable through the law. That whole approach to God has failed me. It's brought me to the end of me. And so I've died to approaching, the God, to, died to approaching God based on what I do or how well I do it. But I died to it as Savior so that I could live to Christ as my Savior, that I might live to God. Because look at here it is, the hope that Paul has, and he's pressing for Peter, and he's pressing for us, that we could live a different way in the world. Not in the frame of legalism, not in the frame of license, but we could live so out of love that it's almost like we're living a new life, that we've died to a certain way of operating, and that we've come to life to a new approach to God. I was crucified with Christ. Something about me has died on the cross with him, and something new has come to life. God's treated me like I hung on the cross, like all of my debts have been paid completely in full, and I have nothing more that I owe him ever, but I can approach him. And the life I live, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Okay, so look at this. This is a funny question because it's like, I, I died, I crucified with him, I no longer live, but I live. Like, do you, do you not feel the weirdness of that? Like, I don't live anymore, Christ lives in me, but I live by faith now. It's like, wait a minute. Like, are you dead or are you alive? Come on. What's going on? Like, Paul is confusing here. And what he's trying to get at is, I've so been gone because I've been crucified with Christ that it's like there's a completely new way of living for me. And I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? I live out of the wellspring of the love of Christ and it's totally transformed everything about the way I approach God and the way I approach life such that even my dinner table has changed. Even my food practices have shifted. This, the love of God for you in Christ, is the power for joyful obedience. Right? Or in other words, what you could say this, 
You could say, it's the love of God that frees you to obey the law of God. Only when Christ has loved you, given himself for you, and you believe that he's died for me. Feel the personal language of that. For me. Will you be freed to live for him? You can live for the one who's not merely after what you can do for him, but he's offered all for you. He's done for you. Now, this Thursday, actually, in my gospel community, we did the exercise at the end of the chapter. And it was funny because as we're looking through this long checklist of all the ways that we tend to live like orphans rather than live like sons and daughters, there was a heaviness that came in the room. It was like we, we, we felt all of the ways that we've been failing to live out the gospel. Now, there's a good sense of conviction there, but it was almost as if like this very lawish heaviness came upon us and we missed the freedom that was being offered to us in these words. And I think that's because oftentimes I have and churches in our stream have preached mercy instead of grace. You realize they're different, right? Mercy deals with the law and says that the problem's gone away. The problem you had with God is completely wiped off the map. You are cleansed, forgiven, cleared. What's grace do? Grace gives you everything that you don't deserve. Grace offers you not just freedom from the problem, but it offers you a new power and a new relationship. Grace is sweet because if you think about it this way, mercy says he loved me and gave himself for me. My debt's cleared. What's grace? He lives in me. He, like, the son of God lives in me, Paul says. That's good news, right? That, that's incredible news, right? We, we've been kicking around like, with the guys in my gospel community, this phrase, favor ain't fair, right? Favor ain't fair. And maybe you've heard it before. Um, but the funny thing is favor ain't fair tends to be like, favor ain't fair because God, God's blessing is on me. And like, if God wants me to, he's gonna, he's gonna give me that job. Right? If God wants me to, his favor is upon me, he's going to reserve that house for me. If God wants me to, the car is going to be still sitting on the lot just for me to take and drive away. But it's almost as if favor ain't fair has been Americanized. It's been like materialized. Let me gospelize it for you for a second, okay? Favor ain't fair means that Christ lives in you. Like, think about that. Christ lives in you. Favorite fair because it's not just that the problem's gone away, right? And that like you get a house now or something. No, favorite fair because God has said, I want to make you my home. Like I want to live within you. My power surging through you. My love and my life animating you. Like favorite fair because what chance does the law have to hold you down? If the very Son of God lives within you, like, I don't know, this is homeschool for me, but homeschool, we sing a song, right? The characteristics of living things are movement, respiration, sensitivity, and growth, reproduction, excretion, and nutrition. Yes, my daughters know all the characteristics of living things. But think about the verse, like, come on, come on. He lives in you, right? Movement. Movement. 
Like the Son of God moves within you. He lives in you. Respiration. He breathes in you. Like he's literally inhaling and exhaling inside of you. Sensitivity. Is Jesus sensitive in you? Like working through you, knows and sensitive what's going on around you, within you. Growth. Like Jesus is growing you within you. Like reproduction, he's multiplying things within you. Like excretion, he's getting rid of stuff that you need to get rid of, right? Nutrition, he's satisfying you with what you need to be satisfied with. Like he lives in you. What good news is that? What hope is there for a shoulds to hang over our heads if the very power of God and son of God dwells within us. New life, freedom, joy is ours. Man, the law don't stand a chance. Don't make me sing it again. My Minnesota farmer boy mentor, he says, you know what, Trent? There's two chances. Slim, none. That's what chance the law has of continuing to hang over your shoulders if you rest in Christ. And you know what that means? You are freed to obey from delight in God. You can come to the end of yourself and be rid of a self-centered approach to life, either through your law-keeping or your law-breaking. And you can draw on the resources of Christ himself to live for God, right? I died to the law that I might live to God. That's my prayer for us, church, that we would become more alive to God, so filled by his love that we can operate from it rather than for it. If Jesus has won all of the acceptance we need, then we can live for him to his glory, for our great joy. Let's pray that we experience that this week, all right? God, my prayer is the great prayer that you prayed, the Lord's Prayer. Would you help us to come in line, to come in step with the truth of the gospel? so that our desires might become your desires. We pray, let your will be done in us, in our city, in our world. Let your kingdom come in us, in our city, in our world. Not what I will, but what you will, what you desire, Lord. And so would you supply us with the daily bread, the food that we need, so that we might walk in step with you and experience a kind of joy in doing the right thing, doing your things with a heart of joy and love. Free us for that. God, will we be a different kind of people, a different kind of people that love one another, that love those within the church, those outside of the church, a different kind of people that, that so are filled with your grace, life, love, that we shine for your great glory and for our joy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to come to the communion table.
in time of response now. We respond a few ways as a church, right? We respond in prayer. So I've been talking. It's time for you to talk to God, okay? Um, and then we respond in song, right? God's been stirring, doing some things. So let's vocalize it and praise him. We respond with giving. There's ways to give in person, ways to give online to support God's mission going forward through our church. And then we respond in partaking of communion. This, this friends, is a first century kind of meal. It's not fast food. I get that it's in a convenient package, okay? All right? Don't talk to me about the package. One day we'll get past it. Um, it's not fashionable food. It is fellowship food. It is the Lord himself saying, you're welcome at my table. And if your hope is him and you trust in him, would you come partake? And would you be nourished in soul so that you might be freed by the love of Christ in just such simple, tangible measure? So let me pray for that meal, and then the worship team's going to come and lead us in song. God, nourish our souls. We want, um, we want the real bread of life. That's you, Jesus. You said you are the bread of life. And so with this simple foretaste of a wafer and juice, remind us that the bread of life hung on a cross, that he bled and he died, and that he rose again to new life, and that with you, our old approach to God based on what we do has been crucified. It's gone. And now we come pleading mercy and grace and coming to new life ourselves all because of your love and sacrifice. So we praise you and pray that you would nourish us as we partake. In Jesus' name, amen.